the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the band The Twilights and their number one hit, Needle in a Haystack. Our special guests are former members of The Twilights, Australian music icon Glenn Sherrick and Grammy Award winner Terry Britton. When looking back at the biggest bands of the mid to late 1960s in Australia, the Easy Beats and the Masters Apprentices immediately spring to mind, and rightly so. Both these bands were massive. However, ranking right alongside them in the popularity stakes was the Twilights. The Twilights aren't always mentioned in the same conversation as these bands, but the Twilights were equals and in most cases superior to any other band on the local scene. Perhaps one reason the Twilights don't always get the credit they're due is because of the enormous success that both Glenn and Terry would go on to achieve around the world. This in a way somewhat overshadows the Twilight's considerable achievements. The Twilights had nine singles make the charts over a two-year period, including a number one hit with Needle in a Haystack. As well as a number one, they also had another four singles make it into the top five on the national charts. It wasn't just on the charts that the Twilights excelled either. They quickly gained a reputation for being one of the finest live bands in Australia. This is further highlighted by the fact that they would go on to become the national winners of the prestigious Holy Battle of the Sounds competition. Part of the prize was a trip to London to record at the famed Abbey Road Studios. Here's Glenn. You know, we arrived there and, and the guy said, you know, you picked a good night. The group's in here tonight. What do you mean? No, it's the Beatles. Uh, you know, we all sort of started giggling, <laughs> laughing, but we were shit scared that we might run into them. As it turned out, the night that they recorded at Abbey Road Studios, the Beatles just happened to be down the hallway recording Penny Lane. Here's Terry talking about that night. Yeah, we snuck down the hallway, put our ears on the doors and we could hear Penny Lane being recorded. Throughout Glenn's career, he would go on to tick all the boxes of superstardom, number one records in Australia and the USA, as well as filling football stadiums full of adoring fans hanging on his every word. However, his starting music came when he was miming on stage and the record player went kaput. My real um, uh, beginning was when I, I mimed Elvis's um, 
all shook up with a cardboard guitar around my neck. This is this is even before I left school, you know. And um, the record player broke down. And I carried on singing, and that was my first touch of um, that I could I could do something. There was always always a good voice in in uh, my house. My father was was a good singer. He loved to sing Italian opera in in a in a fashion that a Yorkshireman can do. <laughs> and um, he didn't really know the language, really made made up for it with a, with a nice tone to his voice. He kept on singing in the shower every morning and but never followed it up. But um, I, I inherited his ear for uh, pitch and music and uh, he put it to good stead. Um, the, my workmate in the mines department in um, Adelaide, I was a junior cartographer geological cartographer which meant I, I went and got lunches <laughs> uh, and I worked alongside a guy who was in a, a vocal group called the Four Tones and uh, he encouraged me to to join the Four Tones because one of them dropped out and uh, I did and I didn't do any gigs with them because the guy who dropped out decided to come back in again so I, I said to my mates just just my 16 17 18 year old mates who I knocked around Elizabeth with um, Paddy McCartney and Mike Sykes, you know, let's let's do our own thing because we all sort of sang a cappella. We all copied the, the songs of the time, you know, on the way to and from the, the, the drive-in or wherever it was. Um, and the checkmates morphed in, well, didn't morph. Uh, the uh, the bass singer, uh, he, he fell foul of the law <laughs> and he left, um, leaving the trio, and I decided to call it the Twilights. And um, we began just singing anywhere we could for nothing, some weddings and whatever. There was a um, there was a dance hall um, in the centre of Elizabeth, where um, where we used to ply our trough, as it were. As the rock and roll revolution exploded across Australia, promoter Lee Gordon brought some of the biggest American stars of the day to our shores. The Lee Gordon Big Show concert packages even toured the smaller capital cities, and in Adelaide as an impressionable teenager, Glenn got to witness musical royalty firsthand. He watched in awe as stars such as Little Richard and the Everly Brothers played live in front of him. That's where I first got the bug, really, um, growing up in Adelaide and northern suburb of uh, Elizabeth. Um, we'd, we'd all already heard... Uh, early rock and roll from America um, via Elvis and um, the Everleys and Little Richard and all those people that I fell in love with as a 12-year-old boy. But also uh, everybody else caught on to the new sound, the, the American rock and roll sound, and um, included in that was um, Cold Joy and Lonnie Lee. But they, they usually opened for... Um, um, American acts that were coming down in the 50s. I remember going from straight from school and watching um, and listening to Little Richard and the Everly Brothers all on, all on one bill. Um, they were amazing times, you know. Um, it didn't, it, well, it sounded pretty good, actually, depending on the, um, the size of the hall and whatever. We had a place called the Centennial Hall and uh, I saw... O'Keefe uh, on that stage, and um, Lonnie Lee, and a, and a girl called Alice Leslie, 
she lasted a minute. <laughs> Glenda migrated to Australia as a 10-year-old in 1954 and his family settled in the South Australian town of Elizabeth. In 1963, he teamed up with Irish immigrant Glenn Paddy McCartney, Billy Volrad and Mike Sykes to form a vocal harmony group and they named themselves the Checkmates. In Glenn's future successes with the Little River Band and Axiom, vocal harmony would also play a large part in his band's winning sound. And I gravitated, we gravitated together, people that could sing harmony naturally. Um, Paddy and Mike could do that and I could do that. And, you know, we listened very carefully to the Everly Brothers and various other harmony bands, the Beach Boys, uh, Dion and the Belmonts and um, people like that. But harmony's always been... Um, my my greatest love. It's far, you know. It's great to have men's voices raised in 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 harmony, and uh, I still enjoy that now. When the Beatles arrived in Australia in 1964, it changed the music landscape, and Glenn soon realised a vocal harmony group wasn't going to cut it anymore. Another local band, the Hurricanes, played instrumental songs from acts like the Shadows. Like vocal harmony groups, instrumental bands quickly became yesterday's news. So Glenn and Paddy joined forces with members of the Hurricanes. The newly formed band now consisted of Paddy and Glenn on vocals, John Bywater on bass, guitarists Kevin Peake and Peter Brideoak, and drummer Frank Bernard. This new six-piece band became known as the Twilights. The Beatles did that. You know, you had to have a group. All of a sudden, the, the, the group was more important than Cliff Richard or Elvis Presley. You know, it was the Beatles four-piece band that wrote the music and played the instruments and sang the songs. Early on, Kevin Peake left the band and they were on the lookout for a new guitarist, and English immigrant Terry Britton fitted the bill, even if Terry thinks it may not have been his musical prowess that initially got him the gig. Oh, me, I was playing in a, in a little band called, I think, called The Tornadoes or something in the beat basement in uh, Rundle Street. It was a great little, a very grubby little club. And uh, I used to play down there a lot um, around town. And um, one night they came, I think Glenn came down, have a look. And, uh, and they said, interested in joining. So I went for um, an audition and uh, I got the gig. I, also, I think I only got the gig because I looked a little bit like George Harrison with the hair. I think that's really the only reason they, I got the gig, really. I, I, I looked the part. I had the right guitar and uh, the right look. I was pretty. I was pretty young in the twilight. I was the youngest by about four years, I think. In June 1965, the Twilights released their first single, "I Don't Know Where the Wind Will Blow Me," and this was written by Glenn and Peter Brideck. And the song was a hit in Adelaide. We were we were besotted by the Beatles, and uh, decided to uh, form the six-piece Twilights, and we started recording. Terry Britton started to write. And so did I. I, I wrote uh, the first song that uh, got on the radio in, in Adelaide called I Don't Know Where the Wind Will Blow Me. It's a um, very prophetic title.
On the flip side was I'll Be Where You Are, and this song was written by Terry and Glenn. Here's Terry talking about how they became songwriters. Well, people often ask me, so how, how did you start the first song? And I went, well, a guy came from EMI and said, uh, you boys want to make a record? And we said, yeah. And, he, and we said, uh, can we do a Beatles song or something? He said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, you've got to write your own material. And I think we all stood there and went, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> so I said, well, I'll go and give it a go. So I wrote something. I think Peter Brylock wrote something. And... Um, and Glenn joined me on, I think, if I remember rightly, on uh, co-writing this thing, finishing up. And, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks later, we're recording it. I mean, it was crazy. I don't care where love As long as you love me, I'll be where you are. We can travel together all the way to a star. I don't care how you treat me, I'll be where you Terry's career has been incredible. His songs have been recorded by the likes of Tina Turner, Cliff Richard, Olivia Newton-John and Michael Jackson, and literally hundreds of other artists. We'll feature an episode on Terry and his Grammy-winning career in the near future, but when you talk about top-shelf songwriters, Terry is it. Here's a quick snapshot of what I'm talking about. If you think I'm laying it on a bit too thick, take a listen to these gems.
Here's a duet written by Terry featuring Michael Jackson and the one and only Stevie Wonder. The royalty checks that Terry receives from his days in the twilights still mean a lot to him. Well, it does. I'll tell you why. Because every 10 years, you get a check for like $2, $3, or something like that. And when you consider it's the first thing you ever wrote, and you're getting someone giving you $2, $3, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a feeling, to be honest with you. There's a certain type of music fan or music snob that looks down at bands releasing cover songs. But covering other bands or performers' songs has been happening since the first days of rock and roll. The Twilights never hid the fact they were huge fans of the Beatles. Here's Glenn. You know, we we did whatever the Beatles did. We, we all uh, combed our hair forwards <laughs> and um, and went woo. <laughs> we we were the best uh, cover band around because all the bands in those days were cover bands until the Beatles came along. And um, and then you wrote your own music from within the band. That was the style and still is to this day. But we also uh, cut our teeth on the Kinks and the Stones, Eric Burden, whatever, all, all, of the, all of the English sound. Terry agrees there's nothing wrong in covering other songwriters or bands' work. Even the Beatles, the Beatles were a cover band. Everybody starts out as a cover band, and that's where you learn. I mean, you, you and it's like that even now, if I'm writing something now, I might think, oh, you know, I could do a sort of Beatlesque uh, middle eight or something, and because you've got all that stuff to draw on, you know, all the different styles of music you played, whether it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the Who or Small Faces. I mean, everyone, start, everyone starts out doing covers. The Twilight signed with renowned manager Gary Spry, and the band moved to Melbourne. Drummer Frank Bernard left the band and his place was taken by Laurie Pryor. The move from Adelaide to Melbourne proved to be a good one, with the band achieving their first song to make the national charts. If She Finds Out was written by Terry and Peter Brideck and released on EMI's Columbia label. The song reached number 18 in March 1966. She will hear.
The mark of a great band is to be able to put their own unique spin on another band's song. The Twilight's next singles were exactly that, great songs with the band's own take on it. They scored another Australia-wide hit with their version of the animal's Baby Let Me Take You Home. The Twilight's take on the song epitomises the emergence of the garage punk rock sound, and they just kick ass with it. The song reached number 23 in May 1966, but like a fine wine, with time, it's aged perfectly. We also had another song called I'm Not Talking, which was a Yardbirds thing. That one really rocked along like Helter Skelter. Talking, you know, it's my God's sake. Can't see my love, it's not the way I planned it. 
American Larry Williams released Bad Boy in 1959. Williams hit a home run with the song, and since that time, it seems almost every band has had a crack at it, including the Beatles. The Twilights were rewarded for their rocking version of the song, scoring their first national top 10 hit, with Bad Boy going all the way to number 4 when it was released in July 1966. Here's Glenn talking about Bad Boy. Yeah, well, that was originally um, uh, Ronnie Self, I think it was. No, no, not Ronnie Self. Larry Williams, thank you. Ronnie Self was Bob Alina. Um yeah, I always liked that, but the Beatles, you know, Lennon, Lennon did it. Uh, you know, he had his he had his eye on those sort of songs, Twist and Shout and whatever. So, um, and the, I, I think the Twilights did a pretty fair job of it. The recording of Bad Boy was the first time the band teamed up with producer David Mackay, and the partnership would go on to prove to be a successful one. Well, yeah, Bad Boy was at, in my studios, Castle Ray Street in Sydney, um, produced by Dave Mackay. And I think we were the first band that he'd recorded as well, to be honest. The first session he was on, he was really green, came in with his white shirt and his black tie and his uh, short back and sides and, and uh, this grubby lot. And uh, we did that pretty quick too, but um, it's, a good, it's quite a good sounding record. With the ability to be as smooth as silk, the Twilights could also really thump out a song. Yeah, we could do it. Well, I, you know, I, I was very uh, anxious to to try anything, to try what my voice could do, and I, I, I could sing. Well, I, I guess you call it heavy metal now, but in those days it was just good straight out rock and roll. I just got to listen to uh, the Beatles. I saw her standing there and I'm down and songs like that. They were ball terrors. The Twilights were renowned for their live shows. They were one of the most popular around. However, musically, they were also one of the best bands in the country. Their ability to draw a crowd saw them in hot demand. Those days, we worked very hard, you know. We worked most nights and uh, sometimes two, three gigs a night, 
all over Melbourne, or if we were in Sydney, we'd do different things in Sydney. So it was nothing to do, you know, three, four, sometimes four gigs in one night, starting at sort of seven in the evening, finishing at three or four in the morning at a club, you know. We were lucky because we all got on pretty well as well. The Twilight's recorded at the BG's home studio in Hurstville. Just imagine for a moment the amount of future record sales and radio airplay that was in the room that day. Add together the Bee Gees, the Little River Band and Terry's songs, the numbers would be simply mind-blowing. We did some other sessions at the Bee Gees little studio, tiny studio it was. And uh, if that was a laugh, you did a drum kit, a, Marshall, a couple of Marshall stacks in a tiny room the size of a bathroom. It was quite interesting. <laughs> but that was great. And then, you know, Barry Gibbs' mum making the sandwiches for lunch and it was all very nice. <laughs> Many years later, Terry would meet up again with the Bee Gees. I bumped into Morris and Robin um, at an awards thing, had a chat, and Robin said, uh, didn't say much, they just said, he said to me, he said, well, you've done all right. <laughs> so I went, oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> well, that's another story, isn't it? Oh, my God, the Bee Gees, talk about world domination. <laughs> On David Mackay's suggestion, the Twilight's recorded Needle in a Haystack. Yeah, first that was our first number one nationally. Uh, I was a bit disappointed that we couldn't have used one of our own songs, but they 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 weren't quite that good enough. And um, uh, Dave Mackay was a producer for EMI in Sydney, and he said, uh, "I think you guys could do this justice." I I think the original version is, is better than what we did. We didn't we didn't swing it enough in my mind, but it it worked for us. It certainly. It helped us win the Hoadley's National Battle of the Sounds, that's for sure. It, it was in the charts when we were in, in that competition. And, um, yeah, that, that really uh, set our, our career forward dramatically. Here's Terry talking about Needle in a Haystack. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very white, very, very white indeed <laughs> compared to the original. <laughs> Just more of a rocky version than our, it's not R&B, it's, it's more of a, lands more in the rock and roll thing. Uh, that was David Mackay's idea. He said, I think you guys should do a cover of that. David's got good ears, you know. And, uh, he probably thought we needed something like that. And it's, a, you know, it's just such a great, solid song. And, um, you know, our version's quite rocky and a lot of energy. Glenn fondly remembers his formative years in the twilights. Yeah, it was very exciting. You know, those, those days are very important to me. Um, um, and uh, we gradually became, well, pop stars. And um, because television was producing a lot of um, musical shows in those days, live music music shows and, and mime shows, Commotion and The Go Show, Uptight, um, there was a lot of exposure for um, fledgling pop stars like myself. This is only part of the Twilight story, and we'll feature the second half of their career in an upcoming episode. Here's a quick reminder of some of their future hits.
August 1966, The Twilights released Needle in a Haystack, and as we've mentioned, it was a number one smash hit. Written by Americans William Stevenson and Norman Whitfield, the song had originally been recorded by girl group The Velvets, who were signed to Motown Records, and it peaked at number 45 on the Billboard Hot 100. Interestingly, it reached only 84 on the Australian charts. The Twilights would soon change all that. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Needle in a Haystack by The Twilights. Wow! 
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Glenn and Terry for your time, and thanks to the Twilights for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Ursum. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!